Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host this week, Jonathan Kay. When it was founded 15 years ago, Facebook was a place to express your thoughts and connect with friends. Then it became popular as a way to share photos and videos. Eventually, the company moved into voice and video communication. Facebook now claims to have more than 2 billion regular users and owns several other popular services, including Instagram and WhatsApp. Next year, Facebook will embark on yet another bold expansion, launching a new cryptocurrency called Libra, which will be managed by a 28-member organization known as the Libra Association, headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland. Though not all details are yet known, it is expected that Libra-based transactions will be integrated into Facebook users' social media experience, a prospect that has alarmed everyone from privacy watchdogs to national banking regulators. In an article posted to Quillette.com this week, Paris-based New York University professor and cryptographer Nadim Kobesi raised his own concerns about Libra. Among these were the possibility that Facebook and other social media sites might use control of Libra as a way to financially punish users who run afoul of ideological or political taboos. I spoke to Mr. Kobesi by Skype on Thursday. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Is Libra what we call a cryptocurrency, like Bitcoin, for instance? So I just want to answer that question by first just summarizing why people call Bitcoin a cryptocurrency and why Bitcoin is valuable to a bunch of people. The way that Bitcoin got to be interesting for so many different kinds of people is basically by achieving a decentralized currency that can maintain its value uh, with a bunch of nodes that are spread all over the planet without a centralized authority, like a centralized banking authority. And some people like it because of the anonymity. Some people like it because it can keep its value based on a set of mathematical notions that are separate from the banking system. In that sense, if that's what you take uh, as your definition for a cryptocurrency, I would argue that for all intents and purposes, Libra is in fact not really a cryptocurrency. And I can defend that statement if you like. Well, first of all, let's just back up for a sec, because one of the defining elements of many cryptocurrencies, uh, people are familiar with Bitcoin, but of course there are are dozens and perhaps hundreds of other uh, cryptocurrencies, is they use this technology called blockchain. I'm sure some of our listeners know what blockchain is. Maybe give us a summary of what blockchain is, and does Libra use blockchain technology? Libra does use blockchain technology. Uh, Blockchain is a very simple technology that's been overhyped and overcomplicated largely for marketing reasons. But really all it is is just a bunch of information that's arranged in a series, in a single line essentially, where it's very difficult to modify preceding bits of information without corrupting the entire ledger. One really important thing that you need to have in order to have a a banking ledger or, or, or a financial system is a record of all the transactions that can't be easily modified or corrupted and before Bitcoin became popular, this was considered to be something that was difficult to achieve if you didn't have a central trusted uh, authority like a bank, which you, which you knew would never lie about its ledger. But Bitcoin makes it such that you can have a whole bunch of people uh, running the network without a centralized authority and uh, lying, so to speak, about the uh, transaction record 
is still difficult. So here's the primary difference between the blockchain that's used by Libra and the blockchain that's used by Bitcoin. When you're using the Bitcoin blockchain, any member of the Bitcoin network can uh, verify uh, the integrity of the ledger, mine new blocks, which means to um, authenticate new data that's being added to the ledger, propose data for being added to the ledger, the, the, the ledger that records all Bitcoin transactions. And so there's millions of people, millions of machines, millions of Bitcoin nodes that are participating in that process. And that's what makes it truly decentralized. In the case of Libra, this is not the case. There's only about, I think, two dozen different uh, nodes, and all of them are hand-selected Facebook partners. And these are the only nodes that can actually mine new blocks or check the integrity of the blockchain and so on. And these are, it's kind of ridiculous, they're just big old Silicon Valley companies. You have Spotify, you have eBay, you have PayPal, Facebook, and a whole bunch of other companies. And they're just basically this clique of corporate players that all share the same profile, more or less. In some of the marketing materials, I believe Facebook has suggested that it will have some academic or NGO affiliation in some ways. But I just want to ask a question about the baseline that we deal with when we talk about Bitcoin. What you're telling me is that Bitcoin doesn't have, say, a traditional board of governors. It's completely decentralized. But surely there must be some way of making decisions about things like the money supply or uh, certain technical policies that govern Bitcoin operations. When decisions do have to be made in regard to Bitcoin, is, is there anybody who can make those decisions? Most of the decisions with regards to things like the money supply were already set in stone when Bitcoin was first designed. For example, the rate at which you can discover or mine uh, new coins uh, is meant to taper off with time, and that was part of the initial design decision. But if there are any other design decisions that need to be made along those lines, usually it's um, the individuals who are responsible for maintaining the Bitcoin software that do have some kind of uh, ragtag democratic process to make these decisions go through. Sort of like the way Linux was designed or Wikipedia. Or sure, that's, that's a good analogy. But to be clear, there's a whole bunch of disagreements on those levels, and that's why you have all those different blockchains. For example, the Ethereum blockchain had a very serious uh, disagreement a couple of years ago when there was this large part of the uh, Ethereum network that was compromised. It was known as the DAO hack. And so at that point, they actually had to essentially, uh, to put it in simpler terms, reset the entire Ethereum blockchain to a previous point in time, thereby canceling a whole bunch of transactions. And so that showed that the Ethereum foundation itself had the authority to do that and the power to do that. Now, of course, it could only do it with the acquiescence of the uh, nodes to... But when you say nodes, what do you mean by nodes? Random person who has a computer somewhere that's running uh, the blockchain, like the Bitcoin software or the Ethereum software, and just participating in the validation and in the uh, continuation and the integrity checking of the blockchain itself. When people talk about mining Bitcoin, uh, obviously it's a metaphor, you're not digging for it in the ground, but there were people with computers who are running complex algorithms to discover this abstract thing called a Bitcoin. How did that work? So the really cool thing about the way that you, uh, so to speak, mine for Bitcoins is that it's really hard to find one. It's, it's difficult computationally to mine for one. But once you do find one, verifying to others that you have indeed found a Bitcoin is extremely easy. So the problem is very difficult to solve. 
but it's very easy to verify the solution. But what are you looking for? Are you looking for like a really big prime number or? No, it's, it's almost, it's actually kind of similar to that. You're basically just doing a whole bunch of meaningless calculations until you're doing a bunch of hashing. You're, 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 you're generating a bunch of random values and you're going through, you're iterating through this giant list of values until you stumble upon uh, one value that uh, essentially translates to a small enough number. This is a very sort of simplification of what's going on. And I apologize to anyone who's listening who understands how hash functions work in Bitcoin. And I'm probably messing it up. But uh, essentially what you're doing is going through a very large like ocean of numbers and sifting through it, sifting through it, sifting through it until you find one that's just slightly bigger than the last one that was found or slightly smaller. But the process has no analytical solution, you're telling me. It's totally random. You just have to power through it. Uh, and but, but verifying that you have received the right solution is uh, very quick and very simple. Uh, some blockchain company paired up with the uh, Canadian province of Quebec's uh, hydroelectric production facility to, gen to like, just mine for more Bitcoin. And it's actually really unfortunate because imagine if the problems that the blockchain uh, mining was solving were actually interesting problems like protein folding, for example, or stuff like that. That would be really interesting because right now the blockchain network itself, the Bitcoin network itself, by some estimates, and some people are challenging those estimates, but by some estimates uses more power than all of Ireland. In search of what is essentially just a completely random numerical puzzle. Yep, they just, uh, and really aside from finding coins, there's absolutely no way that this energy is valuable or useful. I actually own some Bitcoin and the reason I got it was because I was told that, hey, here's a medium that you could use to make anonymous transactions, which of course has an inherently shady undertone to it. It's like uh, anonymous websites or drugs. When we talk about Libra, this is something different because presumably this is going to be for day-to-day -day transactions for things like ordering a lift on Uber or paying a bill at the grocery store or something like that. Is this targeted at day-to-day -day transactions as opposed to anonymized transactions? Apparently, yes. And that's uh, one of the justifications that Facebook is giving towards having its own uh, coterie of controlled blockchain miners uh, in the sense that they can speed up the network and make it easier for everyone else to participate. I just wanted to say that Bitcoin itself isn't really actually already, you know, it's, it's much more anonymous than Libra for sure, but it's actually not anonymous at all. There's a lot of research that shows that achieving anonymity on Bitcoin for real, aside from the superficial anonymity, is pretty impossible or very difficult to do. You have to pair it with a whole bunch of techniques to actually have any chance at maintaining uh, anonymity when using Bitcoin. But putting that aside, the uh, indeed, the male goal of uh, Libra is to make it ubiquitous. It's basically to be able to have a financial relationship with the Facebook user base that is unable to get a credit card, which is basically most of the Facebook user base, either due to being in a disadvantaged socioeconomic situation or for being too young, uh, living in a place that has unready access to uh, credit cards or to other similar uh, financial services. And the point is to be able to establish a relationship with these people uh, and be able to say, hey, well, you don't need a credit card. The problem there, which I think discussion is inevitably leading up to, it's just that all of the transactions that go through this network are going to be tied to your Facebook account, to your usage of Facebook, to all of the information that Facebook already has on you. And the, the argument that I can already hear people from Facebook making, saying that what I just said is not true, 
is that that's not necessary. You don't need to be logged in maybe to your Facebook account to use this. But let's look at the prior history. Let's look at the prior art. So one of the biggest, most typical examples of how Facebook's tracking actually works is the like button. Facebook, many years ago, invented this like button and you had all these websites uh, show it. And it's basically just a button that you click on and it says that you've liked this page on Facebook. You can share this page on Facebook. So because all of these independent non-Facebook websites were loading up this like button everywhere, this meant that uh, Facebook could essentially spread tracking code all over the internet. And they could track people regardless of whether they were logged into their Facebook account or not and actually build entire profiles, entire behavioral profiles that they would then immediately connect to their Facebook identity once they logged in to Facebook or any Facebook-related service. And so the way that uh, tracking and information gathering on Facebook actually works isn't necessarily through you being logged into the single account, but actually through uh, an aggregate of uh, implicit uh, uh, information, not necessarily explicit information, that's spread through all of the different pieces of, um, uh, of, of tracking code, of little pieces of uh, aggregate information, of, of uh, data gathering, of affiliate services, of uh, Facebook subsidiaries like Instagram usage. Even when you use WhatsApp, which is actually legitimately end-to-end -end encrypted, you know, conversations that you have on WhatsApp cannot be read by Facebook. Uh, the way that Facebook makes profit off of this is by actually siphoning off your WhatsApp contact list and then linking who you have on your phone as a contact, who you do speak to the most, who do they speak to the most, what are, what are their relationships, to the information that they can get off of Instagram, which is similar, to the information that they can get off the news feed, which is definitely something that they can aggregate, um, to the information that they can get uh, out of uh, essentially tracking you around the internet, just to clarify, although ultimately uh, Facebook is the, the mover behind Libra, as you note in the article, the Libra project is being done through a subsidiary, which itself, at least nominally, supervising the rollout of Libra through this governing coalition with more than two dozen other partners. Uh, so Facebook does maintain that there is at least some kind of distance between its centralized brain trust in the form of Mark Zuckerberg. I don't really see the difference. If you look at the research team that's developing Libra, all of these people were hired by Facebook actually in January of this year. I was at the conference when all of them got pitched and hired. And uh, they've been developing it for Facebook. Facebook is the one that's been planning this. They're the ones that organized it. They're the ones that pitched it to the companies that are the only uh, entities that can actually mine and maintain and validate the blockchain. Let me play devil's advocate. Some might say that the pushback on Libra might be motivated by established interests. For instance, if Libra takes off, uh, Bitcoin will become less valuable. Um, or you could have others say that this is a threat to traditional banks. So are there some individuals who might be criticizing Libra because they uh, champion a competing product? Sure. You know, human beings are morally corrupt, and that's, that's to be expected. But... Um, let me tell you, uh, I have personally never held any uh, amount of any cryptocurrency. I do not use cryptocurrency and have never used cryptocurrency. Uh, and I don't think that the vast majority of people who work on Bitcoin or uh, use Bitcoin actually really see it as a transactional device. It's more of a commodity now. It's more of something that you hold the same way you would hold the stock in gold or, or steel or oil. Wait, so I got to interrupt you. This, this is interesting because you're an actual cryptographer. 
and you and, and you don't use cryptocurrency? Well, uh, so here's the thing. Uh, there's a there's a, this sort of catchphrase that goes around in my field that says uh, crypto means cryptography, not cryptocurrency. The whole notion of cryptocurrency is actually relatively new. When I first started being interested in this field, cryptocurrency didn't even exist. And even though cryptocurrency is actually the most famous aspect uh, in terms of popular culture these days of cryptography, within the cryptographic community, it's just a small subfield. It's not even not even uh, a mainstream. Like, well, it, it is mainstream these days, but not even like the main thing, not the flagship thing. Uh, I personally care about a subfield of cryptography called formal verification, uh, which is essentially, uh, or rather, automated formal verification, which is uh, deriving systems that automatically generate mathematical proofs of the security of certain cryptographic systems. So that's extremely different. But before that, I used to work in secure messaging, which is encrypting the communications of WhatsApp or having like a secure chat or a secure connection to your website. So you can log in and your internet service provider can't necessarily see your password for your Gmail account. Uh, there's many, many different subfields in cryptography. And um, I personally think that the cryptocurrency domain, and of course, this is just my opinion and not necessarily correct. I, I personally don't find it very interesting. There's some other parts of cryptography that are much more interesting, but they don't have to do with money very much. So they're not very fashionable. So I use an Android, and pretty much every experience I have is mediated in some way by Google, uh, whether it's Gmail or Maps. But there's also this thing called Google Pay that I will sometimes use to pay for products. Uh, I can just, you know, tap my phone. Obviously, a key difference is that they're going through the traditional bricks-and-mortar credit card system. Sure. But how different is Facebook plus Libra from the world that I already inhabit. Are there similarities between what already exists? With Google Pay and with Apple Pay and with PayPal, um, I find those services to be infinitely more honest because all you're doing there is just they're acting as a sort of buffer, as a sort of relay between you and y your credit card or you and your bank uh, uh, and also like some other online service that you want to transfer money to. So all they're doing is facilitating payment. None of these services actually have the sort of monopoly that Facebook is targeting with Libra. But I do want to take seriously uh, Facebook's own marketing uh, efforts, which present Libra as a way to democratize the uh, retail financial experience uh, for people in parts of the world who, where it may, may be difficult to get a credit card. Or Is whatever. that right? Is that right? If they really want to democratize it, why does everything have to go through Facebook and its partners that, they, that they're selecting themselves? All of them are aggregating, gathering, controlling, harvesting all of the information, all of the behavioral information, all the transactional information, all the social information that comes out of the notion of a currency flowing through a society. Why does that have to be part of the, uh, Facebook's democratic vision. If they really wanted to have a democratic currency, that Zuckerberg fits out at an F7 conference, why does that have to be part of his vision for democracy? Is it really that necessary? Does that actually help his democratic vision? Can't it possibly exist without all of this harvesting and all of this abuse of privacy and people's information? When people do sign on to services like Facebook, and when and if they sign on to the Libra service in 2020, when it generally people check boxes that say, I've read the terms of service, I acknowledge all the information that's going to be disclosed to all these companies. There is a nominal opt-in consent procedure. I've actually dedicated about three years of my life to reading the iTunes user agreement. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a responsibility, and I'm sure everyone does that. Well, it's actually interesting you say that because just yesterday I paid a $40 City of Toronto parking ticket. And before you're allowed to pay that online, you're presented with 
what seemed to me pages and pages of legal documentation. Nobody's reading that stuff. It's just a total lie to think that this is a form of informed consent where you're just deluging people with with all this information and asking them to, oh, if, if you, and really, like, is this really what we want? Instead of having a currency that's truly democratic to sort of hold people hostage to uh, reading a bunch of text and agreeing to it, is it, I mean, if you, if you actually live in a world where Facebook is controlling the global currency, are you going to protest by saying, well, I don't agree to those terms? You know, so you know what? I don't agree to those terms of services and I'm not going to pay rent this month. Is that a decision tree that anyone's going to follow? You do raise an interesting and genuinely unsettling point in the article that you wrote for Quillette. You raise the specter of somebody who says something on Facebook or some other social media network or, you know, WhatsApp or Instagram, which are both owned by, by Facebook. They say something that's politically incorrect or they misgender somebody or they otherwise violate the content rules in an ideological way. And then they're blocked from using Libra because that's a, a Facebook service or a Facebook affiliated service. And so you have this weird world where your political opinions dictate whether you can make certain kind of financial transactions. Is that something Facebook would do? So I think that all those tech companies are currently caught up in this web of uh, not knowing how to behave with regards to the very highly politically charged environment that's being thrown at them. Um, I think that if we extrapolate from the current data, which is uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of those other services having to deal, Patreon, for example, having to deal with the current uh, controversies, they seem to be failing miserably. Their, their, their decisions with regards of who to ban and who to keep up and so on seems to be incredibly inconsistent and incredibly random and, and completely, there's no real logic or, or procedure behind it. So when it comes to people's financial capability, uh, it becomes to me an extremely serious question. Here's an example that I like to point to. So Alex Jones was kicked off from a bunch of services a couple of months ago. Now, to be very... So Alex Jones, who, well, many people call him a conspiracy theorist, and he runs a website called Infowars, and, I, and he's, he's a genuinely eccentric and, many argue, hateful political right. commentator. So I, I, I have, I'm not a fan. I don't like him. I don't watch his show. He's a kook. Right. So, but quite, his, quite, my un, quite unfavorable views on him. One thing that I think is really important for people to realize, especially because he's an unlikable character to many, to many, uh, to, to many communities, is the way that he was deplatformed, where you had uh, Google, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, who all deplatformed him within the same couple of hours. I think it was less than three, four hours when all of them decided at the same time to remove him from their services. The way that it happened simultaneously at the same time across these companies that are supposed to be unrelated, you know, I don't care if Alex Jones is the worst human being on earth. What really matters to me is that we have to stop and we have to think and we have to be critical and we have to be rational and we have to understand the sort of pattern that's showing itself here. Because what this showed to me, and this is just one of many examples, and not I, I, I wouldn't say that it's like uh, actual collusion, but it's it's a sort of implicit cultural shift where you realize that all of those companies belong to the same culture, whether they like it or not, whether they realize it or not. And because they do, these decisions tend to come in a single wave. Almost all of them are based in the same state in the US. And these decisions come socially. And that's fine. That's normal. That's natural. But at the same time, when already we're seeing the way that they can affect 
the ability to participate in public discourse, who, who elected them to be able to do that, right? If a government, uh, for example, the, let's not talk about the U.S. government because it's much harder to do that over there. But if you look at the Canadian government's laws on who gets to say what in public, they're pretty strict compared to the U.S. And to a majority of Canadians, I assume, that's fine because that government was elected. But there's no such process when it comes to these companies who already are having an enormous effect on who gets to say anything online, especially the ability to reach an audience that willfully wants to listen to you. You know, like the people who choose to listen to Alex Jones, they are making that choice consciously. They want to. And I'm not sure that it's up to Facebook and, and Spotify to decide that they don't get to. And so when already we're seeing that become more and more impossible, even in the sort of like relatively vapid setting of uh, online political bickering, it becomes a really sort of urgent question. Do we want to entrust a fundamental economic instrument to those same companies, to that same culture, to those same people, to that same process? So in the 1980s, people were having conversations in policy circles about the phone company in the United States, and that's ultimately what led to the breakup of the Bell system. Is this analogous to that when it comes to what solutions we need uh, in terms of the actual Listen, breakup of Facebook? I'm not an Facebook. expert on that stuff. But what's really interesting, the, the thing that I really noticed, whenever they had someone like uh, Mark Zuckerberg or any high-level, uh, high-ranking member of his team testifying in Congress at a hearing, and they asked about uh, competitors to Facebook, there would always, always be this sort of repeat of this extremely awkward answer where uh, Zuckerberg would say, Facebook has many competitors all over the world. We have so many competitors. And then uh, whenever he was asked to name one, he would just repeat, you know, Facebook has competitors all over the world. They're always struggling to keep up. Okay, so competitors. And very, very rarely would a name come up. And when a name came up, it would be something like Apple iMessage, which is just a messaging service that's not a social network. It's just a private messaging service for people who own iPhones uh, and, and uh, Apple devices. And so I think that it's very clear that there is really no no one out there that can really compete with Facebook. Well, we're talking on Skype. When we were arranging this interview, we were like, well, should we use Google or should right, we use FaceTime just, or should we use Skype? That's just one service. That's just a single service. Facebook offers WhatsApp as one of its services, probably one of its least profitable services. We're talking about what can take Facebook heads on. First of all, you have to be able to target the main product, which is Facebook itself. Increasingly, by the way, Instagram is becoming the main product. It's actually eclipsing Facebook in terms of uh, usage. And that certainly doesn't have a competitor. Snapchat doesn't light a candle to Instagram these days. So what I'm saying is, if you really want to consider a competitor to Facebook, the only way you can take that seriously is if you find an example of a company that has a newsfeed that can compete with the Facebook social media core newsfeed, uh, and also has a messenger that can compete with WhatsApp, and also simultaneously has a photo social media sharing service that can compete with Instagram, and simultaneously has a plan for a currency, and simultaneously has a plan to conquer the internet in developing countries. And the only imaginable companies that can actually be a competitor to something like this, obviously it's either going to be Apple or Google or Microsoft or Amazon, and none of them can do this. The, the biggest competitor to Facebook, oddly enough, I think, is actually uh, Telegram, which is just this one single old messaging service that people in Eastern Europe use. It's not even significant in any way. And in China, uh, you have WeChat, which is definitely not just a Facebook competitor, but definitely has eclipsed Facebook completely in China. But the thing is, there is no Facebook in China. 
Facebook actually does not operate in the Chinese market at all. So can it really be considered a competitor? So in terms of the antitrust question, my answer would be, uh, or the breakup question, uh, or the monopoly question, the answer is that it's obviously necessary, but how it's done and whether it's doable is another question. I mean, I, I think we honestly have to start considering whether any, any institutional body, any regulatory body on earth actually has control over what Facebook ultimately does. Nadim Kobesi, thank you so much for joining the Quillette podcast. Thank you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.